0: Good evening. Uh, Welcome to those of you who are in the building and to those of you joining us online via Zoom. Uh, This is a very different experience for us. Certainly this is the first ever GVALS Zoom experience and the first ever GVALS COVID experience as well. And this is also the first GVALS of the academic year, of the 2021 academic year. So I'm glad that you're with us tonight. Thanks for being here. My name is Jeff Cole, and I direct the Crossroads office, which is Geneva's Center for Enriched Learning. And we are the office that uh, coordinates the GVALS events. Today's event and tomorrow morning's event are intended to celebrate Constitution Day. On September 17, 1787, the delegates to the Constitutional Convention met in Philadelphia for the last time to sign the document that they had just created. The original document, which comprised about 4,500 words, serves as the foundation for our government and is the oldest of any national constitution. It is the U.S. Constitution that binds together a diverse collection of people living in 50 states. Our Constitution places the government's power in the hands of its citizens. It limits the power of the government and establishes a system of checks and balances. Enshrined in our Constitution is the principle that government exists to protect the rights of all citizens and asserts that the government cannot deprive any citizen or class of citizens of their right without due process of law. It is in the Constitution that we find what has become known as the Establishment Clause, the guarantee that Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof a principle that Geneva College prizes. We celebrate Constitution Day annually by inviting a speaker to campus to help us better understand this important living document. At this time, Dr. Miller will come to the podium to introduce this year's speaker. Please welcome Dr. Miller.
1: Good evening, everybody. Good to see you. Welcome to the uh, lecture. I was reminded that when I was a college senior, it was the 200th anniversary of the US Constitution and we took a field trip to Washington and got to sit in about 10 minutes of a Supreme Court uh, session, which was uh, something I appreciate way more now than I did then. Not that I didn't appreciate it, but I'm able to appreciate it more. Uh, And it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight, who was also, as you'll hear a little bit later, I believe a college senior at the same time I was. Were you in Washington DC for the 200th anniversary? Bravo, score one for LBC. (laughs) John Fia is a distinguished professor of American history at Messiah University, Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania, where he has taught since 2001. An outstanding historian as his many books attest and I encourage you to take one with you on the way out after you pay for it of course. Um, Dr. Fia is also one of the leading public scholars of the American historical profession, offering insight and understanding in an impressive in, in an impressive array of outlets to those seeking to make sense of our confusing times. Consider, for example, Dr. Fia's 2011 book, Was America Founded as a Christian Nation? That's the title. The fact that it won the Forward Review's Book of the Year in in Religion and was a finalist for the George Washington Book Prize gives a keen sense of Dr. Fia's ability to speak into the contemporary moment in a way that clears away bad questions and replaces them with more fruitful ones. The book that followed this one two years later, Why Study History, Reflecting on the Importance of the Past, has been read by thousands of fledgling history students, including dozens of our own, as well as ordinary readers. It reflects Dr. Fia's conviction that historical understanding is decisive for any community that seeks to prosper. Dr. Fia's 2018 book, Believe Me, The Evangelical Road to Donald Trump, has turned him into a go-to figure for dozens of media outlets seeking insight into the, unant- into the unanticipated affinity between conservative Protestants and our current president. Dr. Fia has appeared on networks like NPR, CNN, MS, NBC, CBS, and C-SPAN, and perhaps a few other networks that aren't simply known by their initials, who knows. Um, and has been published in periodicals that range from The Atlantic to USA Today to The Washington Post to Sojourners. His speaking engagements have taken him from retirement communities to church basements to local historical societies to research universities to international webinars. If you're interested in tracking Dr. Fia on all this, I urge you to, to read his hugely successful blog, The Way of Improvement Leads Home, or to join his 19,000 followers on Twitter. On a more personal note, John is my oldest friend in the historical profession. (laughs) In the early 1990s, we studied church history together at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, just north of Chicago in Deerfield, where, yes, the Bulls practice. We were there during the Michael Jordan heyday, for those of you who watched The Last Dance. Anybody here watched The Last Dance during COVID? Dr. Fry, okay, yeah, a couple. Uh, The story of uh, Jordan's last season with the Bulls. Um, In fact, my earliest glimpse of John's remarkable talent for public scholarship came watching him perform with his two-man band, Feast. Is that right? Feast. They sang parodies about seminary life. And John was the lead singer and lyricist. If you think Weird Al is good, you have never seen John in action. (laughs) Who could ever forget? Norman Murray, Down by the Graveyard. You forgot in that one, okay. How about That's What I Like About Moo? No? Okay, Douglas Moo, the New Testament scholar. Okay, I forget that, okay. Norm Geisler, you don't, you don't, Norm Geisler, Murray Harris, you don't know that? Do we have one person who knows that debate about the resurrection? (laughs) Okay, apparently you did have to be there. (laughs) I am very glad I was, actually. Um, (laughs) So uh, it gives me enormous delight to welcome Dr. Dr. John Fia back to Geneva as our Constitution Day speaker. Tomorrow morning, he will give a lecture titled The Anti-Federalist Tradition in American History. This evening, he will fill us in on The Wonder-Working Power of the Bible in American Politics. Will you join me in welcoming him? And if it's not too much to ask John, could you give us an encore performance of some of those songs while you're up? All right, let's welcome John Fionn.
2: Can you hear me out there in Zoom land? You may want to turn me down a little bit in the room. because I tend to be loud. And I also, um, yeah, I I feel myself really loud. Am I really loud? Yeah, I don't know who's controlling that, but um, I just get louder and louder as I make more points, so we might want to have to deal with that. Uh, And I want to thank Geneva for giving me this mask, this Geneva mask. I've been wearing one of these temporary things that... uh, you know, itch my face and so forth. But this is really, this is really nice, thank you. Um, it's good to be back at Geneva. I've uh, Been here a few times uh, in various circumstances. Um, I think I was here, I think we were talking here, maybe 2014 uh, was the last time I was here to give a lecture. I think it was actually in this room. Um, I don't remember being up on the stage though. I think I was, I was down there. Um, but uh, I appreciate you all coming out. Uh, on a night like this, um, and look forward to tomorrow morning as well. Um, It's an honor to be your Constitutional Day Uh, lecturer tonight. uh, I'm not really going to be talking much about the Constitution. Uh, Your faculty gave me some free reign uh, on as long as I was in the sort of realm of politics. Uh, They said I could kind of play with my lecture tonight. Tomorrow morning, I actually want to lecture... Uh, interestingly enough, on um, and maybe you guys will get me in trouble on Constitution Day, but I actually want to talk about uh, those so-called founding fathers, if you can call them that, who actually opposed the Constitution, uh, the anti-federalists, and and maybe give them some due, some of their due that uh, historians have you know taken away from them over the years and neglected them. So. Uh, hope to see you again um, tomorrow. Is there a lottery or something? If you can get in, on the, you know, um, get in on the face-to-face or else just via Zoom. So my lecture tonight is titled The Wonder-Working Power of the Bible in American Politics. Um, and I want to start off with uh, an event that happened. I'm guessing you guys were just, most of you in the room were just learning how to walk and talk. Uh, when this event happened, which tells me how old uh, I'm getting, the 2003 uh, State of the Union Address. Uh, The President, of course, George W. Bush, um, this was his second State of the Union Address, Um, and President Bush, in this speech, attempted to revive uh, a campaign slogan that he ran on in the election of 2000, a campaign slogan known as compassionate conservatism, compassionate conservatism. This was uh, a rather innovative approach to conservative politics. Now, while most Americans, uh, listening to Bush's State of the Union address that day, written by Gerson, probably thought very little about Gerson's reference to the quote-unquote wonder-working power of the American people, Maybe some people thought it was a strange turn of phrase or unusual turn of phrase, but you know, didn't really, you know, didn't really think too much of it. For American evangelical Christians, which of course were a significant part of George W. Bush's base in 2000, they would have grasped this reference immediately. Have any of you grasped it? By the way, raise your hands if you. Okay, a few of you, right? I tried this on my daughter on the phone on the drive out here, and she had no idea. She's 22, right? She has no idea. Um, Gerson drew this phrase, Wonderworking Power, from Lewis E. Jones's 1899 hymn called Power in the Blood. And for Christians of a certain age, maybe some of a not of a certain age, as the hands went up, the chorus of this hymn is ingrained permanently permanently in our minds. And I'm tempted to even lead us in the song, right? There is power, power, wonder-working power in the blood of the Lamb. There is power, power, wonder-working power in the precious blood of the Lamb. Right? How many of you have heard that hymn? I'm a terrible singer, but yeah, this is is it, right? Wonder-working power, not of the blood of the Lamb, though, of the American people, right? The popular hymn invokes, of course, Ephesians 1.8. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Colossians 1.20, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of the cross. John 1, or 1 John 1.7, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sins. And especially Revelation 12, which tells the story of a great dragon who is called the devil and Satan, who would one day be conquered by, there's the word, the blood of the lamb. In order to shore up evangelical support for his boss, Gerson wanted Americans to know that government wasn't the answer to the country's social problems. The answer was the wonder-working power, again, not the blood of the lamb, but of the American people. Now, Michael Gerson was not, and George W. Bush, was not the first person to invoke biblical ideas. Now, granted, in this case, it was not the Bible as much as a hymn, right, based upon biblical passages, so we need to keep that in mind. But Gerson wasn't the first to invoke the Bible to advance a political agenda. Nor would he be the last? The Bible has been a useful tool for politicians since the birth of the American Republic. If America does indeed have a biblical heritage, as some Christian conservatives like to say, it also has a long history of lifting the words of the holy text out of the church, that sacred community right that's entrusted with the responsibility of interpreting and applying the Bible to the spiritual lives of people, right? Lifting the holy text out of the church and bringing it into the rough and tumble world of politics, a profane, largely profane, sphere where the message of the Bible has often been manipulated, twisted, reinterpreted, and even sometimes blatantly changed to conform to the needs of those in power or those seeking power. Now, before we move on here, a caveat is in order. Uh, As Eric uh, Miller mentioned, I am a historian by training, and this is a history lecture. My goal here tonight uh, is not to make a case as to whether or not the Bible has been interpreted properly by those who have used it in their political rhetoric although, granted, some might say I have already done this by saying that the Bible was manipulated, twisted, and reinterpreted, right? So I'm fully aware of that. My purpose tonight is to remind us that the Bible is and always has been a very useful book in US political history, and it continues to be today. So, in the spirit of the age of the Constitution, at least, Let's go back to the birth of the American Republic, the American Revolution. The Bible was ubiquitous. It was everywhere during the American Revolution. It was without rival the most cited text in the political pamphlets of the day, those published between 1760 and 1780. During this period, it was quite common for political sermons to blend Uh, I'm sorry, political sermons, yeah, to blend political ideology, ideas perhaps stemming from the Enlightenment, or what was often described at the time as Whig political thought, right, blending them with biblical themes. This is quite common. Take, for example, the Reverend John Allen. In a 1773 sermon at the Second Baptist Church in Boston, Allen fashioned himself from his pulpit as a modern-day Micah, prophet Micah. Some of you remember Micah was the Old Testament prophet who challenged the tyrannical reign of King Ahaz of Judah. Referring to Second Chronicles 28, which was Alan's text for this sermon, Alan showed how Ahaz, and here's a quote, did not, did not that which was right in the sight of the Lord, unquote. Ahaz was a corrupt and disobedient king. His failure to conform to the moral standards that God required of all monarchs prompted Micah to stand up for what Alan called the liberties and happiness of the people above the authority of the king." Micah, in other words, was a champion of democracy, according to Allen. He was a populist who was willing to speak truth to the power emanating from this immoral king. At one point in the sermon, Allen even described Micah as a son of liberty, a phrase that would immediately have resonated with anyone living in Boston in 1773 only months before the famed Boston Tea Party. Based on this interpretation of 2 Chronicles 28, and actually other episodes in Israel's history, which he referenced in the sermon, Alan made it clear that monarchs were not necessarily or always bad. After all, God had allowed David and Saul and Solomon to rule over Israel. These kings, David, Saul, and Solomon, Alan said, were, quote, made for the people, and the people were made for them, unquote. But the Boston Baptists did not hesitate to compare the good kings of the Old Testament with the reign of the current king in 1773, George III. By unfairly taxing the colonists and taking away their liberties, George III had departed from "quote the royal standard" that God had placed on all monarchs throughout history. Now, with such a view out of monarchy affirmed and confirmed, Allen turned to Parliament. "Quote the Parliament of England cannot justly make any laws to oppress or defend the Americans." for they are not the representatives of America, and therefore they have no legislative power either for or against them, unquote. I am not quite sure how this criticism of Parliament fits with Allen's previous remarks about good and bad kings, but this interpretive leap didn't seem to bother him at all. In the course of a few pages of published sermon text, Allen moved from the sins of Ahaz, to a lesson on a king's responsibility to serve the people, to a political plea for, quote-unquote, no taxation without representation. It was all there in Scripture, right, as he used the Bible to promote his, of course, I hope you realize I was facetious when I said that, right? To use the Bible uh, to promote this agenda. Alan's sermon was representative of the age. You can find Dozens and dozens of sermons like this. Um, one of the verses that political uh, preachers, preachers use their pulpits when they preach politics, they love to talk about Galatians 5.1. Let me read it to you from the King James. Galatians 5.1. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty wherewith Christ hath made us free, St. Paul wrote, and be not entangled again with the yoke of bondage, unquote. In a 1770 sermon to his congregation, again, get the chronology here, right? 1770, Enoch Green, the minister of the Deerfield Presbyterian Church, so sorry, you Presbyterians, this was not just a Baptist issue, right? Um, Offered a pretty straightforward interpretation of Galatians 5.1. It would have been an interpretation that would have been widely accepted throughout the history of the church. Green said, quote, because we are enslaved and have become slaves to sin to the tyrant satan we are all fond of liberty unquote and then green added as long as we are out of christ we are enslaved to the worst kind of bondage sin sin that will separate from god us from god and sin that will enthrall us to the devil," unquote. 1770, pretty standard interpretation of Galatians 5:1. You know, we're in bondage to sin. Christ has set us free from sin. Right? He's, he's lifted us out of our slavery to sin. Six years later, it's now 1776. That that date might ring a bell for some of you. And now Green preaches again from Galatians 5:1, and like unlike most ministers, you know, you would think like, well, I got the ser- Galatians 5:1 sermon in the file. You know, I'll just preach it again. Hopefully, six years later, people won't remember. No, no, no. This time, Green is using Galatians 5:1 to deliver his ser- a sermon on his appointment as a chaplain to a New Jersey militia. Green, in this sermon, grounded, he started with a history lesson, actually. He grounded his understanding of the colonial rebellion against England, 1776, um, in the history of what he called English liberties. He argued that, quote, the king of England derives his power from the people, unquote. And then he talked about the English Civil War, which had happened about 100 years earlier in the, well, 130 years earlier in the 1640s, and the way in which the Puritans, the Calvinists of England, had overthrown the Stuart King Charles I. Quote, little better than a century ago, the people resisted and opposed the tyrant King Charles, and they took their rights and they vanquished the tyrant, unquote. Now, 130 years later, George III was treating the colonies much in the same way that Charles II had treated the English Puritans earlier. In response, Green encouraged his listeners at the end of the sermon to start making gunpowder in preparation for war. Throughout the sermon, Green used language that was nearly identical to his 1770 sermon on the same passage, but the interpretation, or I should say interpretation and the application, was very different. The 1770 sermon on Galatians 5.1, as I mentioned before, was spiritual in nature. Green talked about bondage to sin, liberty through Christ. But by the time of the American Revolution, the Presbyterian's theological and biblical understanding of tyranny and liberty had taken on a new political meaning. The enslaver to Green was no longer Satan, but George III and his army. Liberty was now no longer freedom from sin or the right to enjoy God's presence forever in heaven, but liberty was now the individual rights secured to all people in the English British Empire. And the champion of liberty this time around was not Christ. It was not Christ who set us free, but it would be the New Jersey militia who would set us free, for which Green would serve as a chaplain. Again, my goal is not to hear whether or not Enoch Green was interpreting the Bible correctly when he used, does this, but we'll leave that up to the theologians and biblical scholars in the room. Um, but you know, it's a pretty, pretty safe to say he was kind of innovative right, with this interpretation. He was certainly using the Bible to speak to the political issues of the day uh, in a way that you know, perhaps the, the historic Christian church would not have done. Now, many clergy were even more explicit in their use of the Bible to justify rebellion. Against England, two such sermons are (laughs) worth some The first is by a preacher named Abraham Cateltus, a Dutch Calvinist preacher, and it was titled "God's Arising and Pleading His People's Cause." Unquote. It was preached in 1777 to Dutch and Huguenot Christians, French Calvinist Christians, in Jamaica, New York, Queens. The sermon text was Psalm 74:22. Rather short text, it just simply says Arise, O God, plead Thine own cause That's it, that's the text Cateltus began by Reminding his hearers That God demands righteousness Of his people Good way to start, right, for a preacher God requires Christians to love Worship and please him And to obey his quote-unquote Will and commandments Pretty standard stuff Christians are to show their love for God, Keteltus said, by leading lives of kindness, justice, charity, integrity, and truth. They are to love their neighbors, and they are to hate sin. Any society that practices this kind of righteousness, Keteltus affirmed, will always be pleasing to God. The minister then assumed Cateltus then assumed that colonial America was exactly this kind of society. Right? A society that conformed in all those ways uh, to the scriptures. You see where this is going, don't you? Right? Keteltus also affirmed in this sermon that the righteous, as he called them, which he applied, said, was basically the colonies, they were righteous, would always have God's protection. When the true believer is injured, oppressed, persecuted, plundered, imprisoned, tormented, and murdered, God will look upon the true believer's cause as his own. To tell that God used injuries and threats to his righteous followers as if they were done to him. This is why, for example, God punished Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king, who persecuted Israel. Indeed, Cateltus concluded, God has proven throughout biblical history to intercede, quote-unquote, on behalf of the elect. Jesus, quote-unquote, is our merciful high priest and will always make intercession on behalf of the righteous who call to him for aid. Now, based on this biblical and theological argument, Cateltus asserted that Again, another quote, the cause of this American continent against the measure of cruel, bloody, and vindictive ministry must be the cause of God, Unquote. If the colonies were indeed God's elect and righteous people, as Cataltus believed they were, then any such war carried out against them must be, in Ket- They quickly connected this kind of religious liberty with the civil rights they enjoyed as British subjects, and they all compared uh, freedom—the freedom they enjoyed by uh, enjoyed by English men and women—to the religious and political tyranny of France. Sherwood, however, expanded his definition of popery even further, beyond the Catholic Church, to include any government or power that threatens civil and religious liberty. Quote, this popish, mysterious leaven of iniquity and absurdity, he said, has not confined to the boundaries of the Roman Empire, nor strictly to the territory of the Pope's usurped authority and jurisdiction but has spread in a greater or less degree among almost all the nations of the earth, especially among the chief rulers, the princes and noblemen thereof. In other words, popery was now not just a religious category, but it was synonymous with tyranny. It was not merely confined to France, but could also be applied to some of the 17th century Stuart monarchs, Like the aforementioned Charles II and his brother James II, who threatened religious liberties in England, tried to close down Parliament and do all these nasty things to take away liberty. And Sherwood concluded that popery could be found anywhere. Anywhere there was a corrupt system of tyranny and oppression, there you would find popery or papism. Such broad definition of popery actually allowed Sherwood then to apply the lesson of Revelation 12 to the cause of the American Revolution. I am of the opinion, he said, that the Church of Christ in every age may find something in this book of Revelation applicable to her case and circumstances, and all such passages that are so may lawfully be applied and approved by us accordingly, unquote. There it was. There was Sherwood's biblical hermeneutic. He was prepared to put an American spin on Revelation 12. The woman, who Sherwood now started calling the Church of Christ, fled to a wilderness which he now identified as the English-American colonies. Here, the woman would be nourished by God in the, quote, quiet enjoyment of her liberties and privileges, civil and religious. But the serpent or parliament, was threatening. In a strange blend of political vocabulary and biblical interpretation, Sherwood described the despotism, arbitrary power, tyranny, and corruption that this new English serpent was enforcing on the woman in the wilderness. The woman represented some combination of the Church of Christ and the English colonies as a whole. Again, like Cateltus, Sherwood's conclusion brought it all home. Quote, liberty has been planted here, and the more it is attacked, the more it grows and flourishes. The time is coming and hastening on when Babylon the Great shall fall to rise no more, when all wicked tyrants and oppressors shall be destroyed forever. These violent attacks upon the woman in the wilderness may possibly be some of the last efforts and dying struggles of the man of sin. These commotions and convulsions that we are experiencing in the the British Empire may be leading to the fulfillment of such prophecies as relate to his downfall and overthrow and to the future glory and prosperity of Christ's church. The future prosperity of the Church of Jesus Christ was directly connected To the American Revolution and the preservation of a free colonial America. For Sherwood, there was little difference between the two. The coming of the kingdom of God as described in the book of Revelation and the emergence of a new nation defined by liberty and justice for all. In writing about the use of the Bible in revolutionary America, historian Mark Knoll has suggested, quote, To be sure, patriotic ministers often applied biblical texts to support their cause. But now, after the passage of time, these efforts look more like comical propaganda than serious biblical exposition, unquote. Undeniably, many clergy took great liberties with biblical passages in order to make them fit with the dominant political ideas of the day. The use of scripture to advance the cause of liberty against the British Empire seems to have had some relative political success. For example, in his 1781 book called The Origin and Progress of the American Revolution, Peter Oliver, a Boston judge and a loyalist, a supporter of the crown, described the situation during the resistance to the Stamp Act in 1765. He wrote about the Patriot mobs moving through Boston, damaging public and private property, pouring scolding hot tar and feathers on government officials, and threatening the lives of anyone supportive of the Crown's new tax. Oliver said that the rioters had, quote, abandoned all virtue from their minds. And where did they learn this behavior? Oliver insisted they were merely following the direction of the so-called, quote-unquote, black regiment. A reference to patriotic clergy who used their regular biblical sermons to encourage resistance. The black regiment meaning the black robes that they wore uh, in the pulpit. Oliver said that one Boston minister actually delivered what he described as an oracle, probably similar to what Sherwood and and Kateltas did, right? Or Green or Allen. An oracle to his congregation, urging them from the pulpit to quote, fight up to your knees in blood, unquote. The judge was baffled by the way these ministers put seditious and violent thoughts in the head of their congregations. Quote, do heavenly minds have such great anger? Unquote, he asked. Several 1765, Issues of the Boston Gazette confirm Oliver's observations. Now, we no longer tar and feather unpatriotic American citizens, or at least American citizens who we think are unpatriotic. And today, unlike in 1765, the defenders of patriotism are the ones trying to quell the mobs and riots in the streets through their calls for law and order, at least as they understand it. But if you listen carefully to many American religious and political leaders the Bible remains on the side of liberty. While a fuller examination of the Bible and politics would reveal that this trend of conforming scripture to American ideals can be found on the left, the right, the center, uh, all over the political spectrum, uh, it is quite obvious that our current administration, like the revolutionaries of old believe in the wonder-working power of the Bible. The conflation of Bible verses with Enlightenment ideas about political freedom was common uh, among pre-Civil War abolitionists, post-Civil War imperialists, 20th century Cold Warriors. Lovers of liberty have been using Galatians 5:1 repeatedly for over 200 years. They also love 2 Corinthians 3.17. Now the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. But it is hard to find in the annals of American history a case quite like that associated with our current vice president, Mike Pence. Earlier this year, as the head of Donald Trump's coronavirus task force, Pence revealed a particular fondness for 2 Chronicles 7.14. Quote, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and will hear their land. How many of you have heard a politician quote this? Patriotic preachers and politicians have used this verse for decades as a means of rallying America to its supposedly Christian roots and its special relationship to God. Now, just for reference sake, the verse's larger context is um, God's future, once-and-future promises to Israel um, following Solomon's building of the temple in Jerusalem. That's the context in which the verse was uttered. During his COVID-19 press conferences, Pence would end his prepared remarks by suggesting that if Americans social distance, wear masks, and pray for healthcare workers, God will, quote-unquote, heal our land. Like Gerson's wonder-working power, those with ears to hear knew exactly what Pence was referring to when he used this phrase, 2 Chronicles 7.14. But Pence took even more liberties with this biblical passage in June 2020 at a Trump rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. When he introduced Donald Trump, this is what he said, quote, if God's people who are called by his name will humble themselves and pray, so far so good, 2 Chronicles 7, 14, right? He'll do like he's always done through the long and storied history of this land. You'll hear from heaven, and he'll heal this land, this one nation under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all, unquote. Not only depends Pence through the words of the text, but he, if you pick this up, he fused it uh, with the Pledge of Allegiance, right? A few months later, during his Republican National Convention speech at Fort McHenry, right, the place where the Star-Spangled Banner was written by Francis Scott Key, Pence continued this practice of using the scriptures for his own political acts. This time he turned to the New Testament. He began by accurately quoting 2 Corinthians 3.17. I'll repeat that verse again here. Now the spirit of the Lord is the spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom, unquote. St. Paul wrote these words in the first century to encourage the Corinthians uh, to live spirit-filled lives that would free them from bondage of sin, death, and guilt. But for Pence... This was also a passage about modern political freedom. In the context of COVID-19, the COVID-19 pandemic that has been seen by many Trump supporters uh, as a threat to their liberties. Trump supporters have stormed state capitals. They've written social media posts to express uh, their freedom to forego the wearing of masks, their freedom to uphold worship services and meet in large groups. This interpretation of 2 Corinthians 3.17 was no doubt effective. In the same paragraph of the speech, Pence made an allusion to Hebrews 12, 1-2. Quote, Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, some of you are familiar with this passage, right? Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. And let us run with perseverance, the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith. In the previous chapter of the book of Hebrews, as some of you may know, Hebrews chapter 11, the author chronicles the great heroes of Israel. Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses, Rahab, Samson, David, just to name a few. These were men and women who walked by faith. But Pence's Christian nationalism reading of Hebrews 12, 1, 2, 1 and 2, again, remember, at Fort McHenry, the site of the 1812 battle that inspired Francis Scott Key to write the Star-Spangled Banner, it sounded a little bit different. Here's what Trump said, quote, or, or Pence said, quote, So let's run the race marked out for us, he said in his speech. Let's fix our eyes on old glory and all she represents. Let's fix our eyes on this land of heroes and let their courage inspire us. And let's fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith and freedom and never forget where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, while it is common among preachers and patriots during the, it was common, but among preachers and patriots during the revolution, to offer creative interpretations of biblical passages to support their cause. I am not aware of any example in which Christian revolutionaries actually change the words of scripture to advance their political cause. So they'll be welcome to hear if you've heard of any. Okay, quickly, let's get back to the revolution here as we wrap up. The patriots were not the only ones engaged in the imperial crisis with England to use the scriptures. Opponents of the American Revolution extensively used Romans 13, 1 through 7, and 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, to show that rebellion, the American rebellion, was conceived in sin. In fact, Romans 13 was the most discussed and debated scriptural passage in the 1760s and 1770s. Very quickly, Romans 13 begins, Let every soul be subject to the higher powers, for there is no power but of God. The powers that be are ordained of God. Whosoever therefore resisteth the powers resisteth the ordinance of God, and they that resist shall receive to themselves damnation. And then there's 1 Peter 2.13. Submit yourself to every ordinance of of man for the Lord's sake. Uh, And then it goes through a little bit more and ends with fear God, or love the brotherhood, fear God, and what? Honor the king. These passages suggest that all rulers are ordained by God and are thus worthy of honor. Romans 13 states clearly that one who resists such authority will receive damnation. It also, by the way, requires Christians to pay their taxes, tributes. We won't get into that. When taken at face value, then Romans 13 and 1 Peter 2 seem to be teaching complete submission to government Authorities with no exceptions or caveats. And this is exactly the way that many loyalists, mostly Anglican ministers and royal officials, interpreted the meaning of these passages. Jonathan Boucher, a Maryland loyalist, no doubt had Romans 13 in mind when he wrote, quote, to resist and rebel against lawful government is to oppose the ordinance of God and to injure or destroy institutions most essential to human happiness. New York Anglican Samuel Seabury, known now by millions for his song The Farmer Refuted on the Hamilton soundtrack, remember him? Said in a published sermon on 1 Peter 2.17 that it was necessary to, quote, wipe off those aspirations and ill impressions which the ignorance and foolish men had brought upon the Christian religion by pretending that their Christian liberty set them free from subjection to civil government. For shame for shame. I added that part. Yeah, that was a Hamilton reference. Another New York Anglican Charles English believed that Christians obedience to government was what quote distinguished themselves from others and manifested the native excellence and spirit of their religion. These loyalists were quick to also remind their listeners that when St. Paul wrote these words in Romans 13, and when Peter wrote these words, they were under the government of heathen empires, magistrates, Nero, Caligula, who were persecuting Christians. And nevertheless, they were told to obey the government. And now you're complaining, patriots, about paying high taxes? British royal governors worked very closely with these Anglican ministers to maintain their political authority. They listened to them. New York governor, William Tyron, made sure that all of Samuel Seabury's sermons uh, on Romans 13 and, and 1 Peter 2 were published and disseminated widely throughout the colony. Colonial assemblies began their sessions in the 1770s with readings of 1 Peter 2, Fear God and Honor the King, Massachusetts Governor Thomas Hutchinson relied on Anglican ministers to sustain his authority amid the revolutionary tumult in Boston. And as we have already seen, that did not go very well for him. Romans 13 has had a long shelf life in American politics. In the early 19th century, Southerners used the verse to keep their slaves submissive. Following the passage of the Fugitive Slave Act in 1850, Politicians and theologians called upon Romans 13 to justify the authority of the controversial act and to justify the reclamation of their runaway slaves who had escaped to New York, or the North, I should say. Those who deliberately broke the Fugitive Slave Act, namely the abolitionists, people on the Underground Railroad, they come immediately to mind. They were failing to submit to the authority of this God-ordained piece of legislation. Over a century later, Romans 13 became a favorite verse of white segregationists in the American South. Martin Luther King Jr.'s 1963 Letter from a Birmingham Jail, something every every college student needs to read at least once. It didn't ever mention Romans 13, but King certainly had this in mind when he said... Quote, one may well ask, how can you advocate breaking some laws and obeying others? The answer lies in the fact that there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. Around the same time King was in a Birmingham jail, The evangelist Billy Graham was quoting Romans 13 to send a message of Bible-based law and order to Vietnam protesters in the streets on college campuses and on college campuses. In one speech on Romans 13 that Graham delivered to an organization of Protestant New York City police officers, Graham substituted the word policeman in Romans 13 for authorities. And as recently as 2018, when the Trump administration started separating immigrant children from their undocumented parents, then Attorney General Jeff Sessions defended the policy against critics by invoking Romans 13. He said, quote, I would cite you to the Apostle Paul in his clear, I can't do his Alabama accent, but clear and wise command in Romans 13 to obey the laws of government because God has ordained them for the purpose of order. Orderly and lawful processes are good in themselves and protect the weak and unlawful, unlawful, or sorry, and lawful, unquote. Trump Press Secretary Sarah Sanders followed up by saying, quote, it is very biblical to enforce the law. Lately, it has become a source of debate, Romans 13, about whether churches should obey state restrictions on worship. John MacArthur, the pastor of Grace Community Church in Los Angeles, kept his church closed during the early weeks of the pandemic in accordance with California restrictions on indoor worship. He claimed he was following Romans 13, but when California did not remove these restrictions fast enough for him, and especially after the number of coronavirus cases started declining, MacArthur said that Romans 13 no longer applied and he took the state to court. And now and then, Romans 13 does not even need to be read in order for a president to assert the verse's authority. Sometimes all you need all you need, is a president, a Bible, a camera, and a historic Washington, D.C. church. In the end, whether it is employed on behalf of liberty and freedom from the power of strong central governments prone to tyranny, or employed to enforce the power of the state, The Bible and its wonder-working power has always been a fixture of American political life, and I imagine it always will be. Thank you. Do we have some time for questions? I went a little longer than I thought I would. but
0: I think so. Do
2: you think we have time for questions, or do you think I went a little longer than I thought?
0: I think we have time for questions. So if the people, anyone in the balcony has questions, you're welcome to come down to to the lower floor, and uh, we'd be happy to take your questions. Thank you so much, Dr. Fia. We appreciate it. Uh, I will tell you that um, while you're thinking of your questions, that um, immediately after this, if there are questions you want to ask, talk about maybe um, current situations or particular historical examples that you thought of. Uh, Dr. Fia will uh, stay around for a little bit and uh, answer your questions in a smaller, uh, more intimate setting. So anyone have questions? Uh, hi, I was thinking about uh, the Martin Luther King you're talking about, about unjust versus just laws. Yeah. As a Christian, how should I differentiate between the two of unjust and just?
2: Yeah, I mean, like I said at the beginning, I'm not here to, to make a theological case one way or the other about what's a just law or what's an unjust law. Um, you know, that's a question that you should probably uh, ask your uh, theology professors or your political science professors, um, you know, because you're going to get various different takes on what's adjusted and unjust law. And we're seeing that in our culture right now. Um, you know, we're seeing, uh, you know, is it unjust to make churches, um, not allow churches say to worship indoors, right? You know, at what point do you resist Romans 13? Um, I can answer, again, as a historian, I'm not here to solve that problem. Um, I will say this. Um, In the revolutionary era, uh, there were patriots who were constantly responding to Romans 13, the Romans 13 arguments that people like Samuel Seabury and others were making, right? Um, And the way they would often respond was very similar to the way that Martin Luther King responded. If the law is just, uh, we must obey it. If it is unjust, we mustn't. And the argument that they made was high taxes, which resulted in the taking away of British liberties of people to not be able to represent themselves in their own legislatures, was enough of an injustice to the people of the colonies that it merited a revolution. Now, the reason I bring that story up is because it shows you the complexity of these issues. right? In other words, there were some who would have argued, high taxes is not a reason to disobey Romans 13, right? Um, taking away your liberties, you know, maybe making you, you know, uh, uh, you, know you can't buy stamps or you, you have to pay an extra tax on, um, on uh, 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 glass or lead or tea or something like that, or you, are not allowed to meet together in um, small, um, you know, town meetings, or they're closing your port, right? They're not allowing you to trade and have a certain degree of economic freedom within, you know, Boston Harbor, say, right? You know, are these things? Here's this is the debate. This is the crux of the debate. That you know, sometimes we live with the questions that we try to wrestle with, rather than trying to come up with a definitive yes or no answer, right? The debate is, you know. Is that enough to violate Romans 13? And if it is, then the revolution is justified. If it's not, then like Samuel Seabury said, and actually like modern day interpreters too, John MacArthur, who I mentioned, makes this argument, the revolution is, quote unquote, conceived in some kind of sin or anti-God, right? So um, I'm not trying to dodge your question, But I'm trying to give you kind of the historical background to give you the show you that this you are not the first person wrestling with uh, this question. I could give you my personal opinion on this but it would it would be almost impossible for it to mean anything without some kind of specific context right so I kind of my my take on this varies from issue to issue. Hello. Even then I'm not entirely always sure.
0: Other questions?
2: Got one back here, Jeff.
1: Hi, Uh, so I know you were able to prepare for this one in terms
2: of the scripture references that you were using. Um, Historically, in a lot of the interpretation, Was there a lot of usage of passages of scripture that deal specifically with civil disobedience? Things like Exodus, uh, what is Exodus 1 with the midwives and Daniel with disobedience directly against governance? I'll take the Exodus one because that's the one that was most, the story of the Exodus has been, you know, I could give a whole lecture on the way the the Exodus story has been used in American history by both white and black Americans. (laughs) right, especially African-Americans, right, in bondage to slavery. But right up there with Galatians 5.1 and um, um, passages like 2 Corinthians 3 and Romans 13, right, was the Exodus story. And many of these ministers preached on the book of Exodus as a way of suggesting that, you know, George the third, you know, I could have replaced everything I said about you know, the beast or whatever being George III, uh, with Pharaoh is George III, right? And slavery is, you know, an oppressive leader holding you back, and God is always on the side of liberty, right? You know, and so, yeah, over and over again you see this. Um, I would, I I can't be definitive about this, but, you know, I've been, for for. Maybe two decades I've sort of immersed myself in like, these kinds of sermons and you know, biblical references. You know, I've written several books about the Bible and, and American life. And if there's a biblical passage that has something to do with freedom from tyranny, right, not, not spiritual tyranny, but political tyranny, it you know, says something about tyranny, it will be used for political purposes. You know, I'd be hard, you know, I, I guarantee you if, if you were to throw out other verses and I type them into uh, a, a database called Evans Early American Imprints, which lists all the things published prior to 1800, it would, it would come up. So yeah, this was very, very common, right? Using, on both sides, as I pointed out, but the exodus, the freedom, right, civil disobedience, all of these kinds of things um, were very important. Although... Yeah, I'll leave it at that. I'll leave it at that. Yeah.
0: Throughout the 19th and 20th century, um, do, you see, do you see certain periods when this really peaks? You talked about the Civil War, uh, abolition, um, thinking about World War II and the imagery that you use, like even um, in the Frank Capra f- series, um, Why We Fight. Yeah. you know, Onward Christian Soldiers is used as background music and all that sort of thing. Are there, are there times when this really peaks in both of those mm-hmm. centuries, and, and why is that?
2: Yeah, um, so on the liberty verses, right, you know, the freedom verses, um, you see uh, these kinds of, you know, I hate to use the term manipulations of the text, but they are in some regards, right? These kinds of manipulations of the text are used very often by the Confederacy, Against the tyrannical North, who's taking away their liberties and rights essentially to own slaves, right? Um, So you see these, you know, many Southern preachers using, uh, sounding very much like the patriots of old. Um, You also see a huge spike in this kind of language in the 1950s and 60s during the Cold War, right? Uh, We, Christianity, and America as a Christian. You know, this is the decade, of course, the '50s, when "Under God" gets put into the Pledge of Allegiance, where "In God We Trust" gets put on, um, on a dollar a paper money. This is Eisenhower, you know, kind of, kind of thinking about, you know, everybody should worship somebody, you know, something. I don't care what it is, right? You know, this kind of civil religion, as we often describe it as. Um, but you know, you want to talk about. America as a Christian nation and, and equate that with a nation Christian nation associated with political liberty as well to define yourself against you know the evil atheistic right I don't know growing up I grew up in the end of the cold war and godless communism was like one word you know it was godless communism right <laughs> you know all of those all of those uh kinds of things so you see a spike there you see um it was funny when when um when Trump, uh, when Sessions used Romans 13 to justify uh, Trump's decision to separate the children from their parents on the border, um, you know everybody, everybody was going crazy, and all these reporters from like the Washington Post, New York Times, all these other places, they they didn't understand what was going on. Like, what is this verse he's quoting? Um, so a lot of historians were consulted, and and what a lot of us found as we did some research on this was that. Um, in addition to uh, the revolution, the high point of the Romans 13 was, as I mentioned, uh, in the 1850s, right? You know, and it wasn't as much, it was used for like slave masters who said like, you cannot run away slave because I'm your authority and you have to submit. It was much more used again in the context of the Fugitive Slave Act, right? 1850 Fugitive Slave Act essentially says that Uh, a a slaveholder whose slave has run away to the North. The slaveholder now has a legal right to go up into the North and reclaim his slave. And the burden of proof is not on the slaveholder to prove that that African-American or that black person is his, the burden of proof is on the slave, the runaway slave, to prove that he is indeed free, right? So this seemed to be an act of injustice to many in the North, but the South defended the Fugitive Slave Act uh, against the abolitionist critiques by invoking Romans 13. So, if you were to graph this, you would see a huge spike around the 1850s with Romans 13 for that, you know, in that case. I am not aware of any major kind of use of Romans 13 prior to like the Trump administration, which you see this over and over again in the Trump administration, not only from Jeff Sessions, but from evangelical ministers who are essentially saying, you know, um, using Romans 13. so there's a revival of Romans 13 going on right now, right? Because anything that Trump does, even if people find it to be immoral or unjust, um, we have to obey it, a lot of his most ardent supporters, Christian supporters are saying, because it's passed by a government, and government must we must obey God, right?
0: Are there other questions?
2: Sorry, another one. Um, yeah. So we've talked a lot about in modern times how conservatives have an affinity for scripture in yeah. political. What about the more left-leaning side? I was hoping of, someone of would ask me about that. The reason I focused on the conservatives, I think, was got largely because I wanted to make the analogies between our current administration, just so I was current events, right? But. Um, I actually got in trouble when I said this uh, in a piece, an article I wrote uh, about maybe uh, going on like maybe 10 years ago now, eight to 10 years ago, in which I made the case that Barack Obama uh, was probably the most scripturally saturated, his, his rhetoric was the most scripturally saturated rhetoric of any American president. Now, of course, Barack Obama would not have been, you know, justifying kind of you know, economic and political freedom like the right would do, um, nor would Barack Obama necessarily be using things like Romans 13 or 1 Peter 2. Um, but if you listen, go back and listen to Barack Obama's speeches. He is constantly, you know he loves things like the Sermon on the Mount, right? Uh, the red letters in the gospels, right? That talk about po- the poor, talk about um, you know, uh, justice, right? He loves the Old Testament. Even if you go back to listen to his most recent speech uh, at the funeral of, uh, well, I guess this would have been not his most, his most recent was the DNC, the, the Democratic National Campaign, but the one right before that, John John Lewis's uh, uh, funeral. You know, that that speech is saturated uh, with scriptures about justice, about the poor, um, about the marginalized, right? Um, you know, uh, so, so you see this. You see this from the left. Bill Clinton used to like quote quote scripture along those lines as well. But the, you know, Jimmy Carter was really uh, the first one, first kind of man of the left, if you want to call him a man of the left, a Democrat uh, in modern times to actually do this. I'm saying post World War II. FDR did it all the time. Used scripture to justify the New Deal. Um, so it's 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 done on both sides. Yeah, definitely. And that's why I kind of wanted to get that caveat in there at one point. I don't know if you picked that up in the lecture where I said, you know, left, right, and center have all tried to do this. Yeah. But I think Obama, you know, Obama came to Messiah College in 2008 and spoke. He debated Hillary Clinton. CNN was there and everything. It was a huge event in the life of our college. And um, it was on faith, faith and politics, right? And uh, this is right before the Pennsylvania primary in two thousand eight, when Hillary Clinton was running against Obama, and it was still close. And you know, it was like you were in church, right? Both Hillary and Obama, you know, use so much scripture. Um, again, all for their kind of you know social justice kind of you know political political agenda. Yeah. Yeah, in the back. Why do you think it was common for, um, why do you think a lot of American evangelicals um, voted, um, uh, voted for Trump or maybe have voted conservatively as a whole, if that is um, uh, historically yeah. consistent? Yeah, I have thought a little bit about this. Um, I think just to be quick, I could give you a whole other speech on this. Um, I think there were, but I'll I'll, I'll let it rip here, right? I think there were three reasons, very quickly, um, why many white evangelicals turned to Trump. One was um, a sort of sense of fear about uh, the decline and collapse of Christian America, right? And you could trace this all the way back to like, this fear all the way back to the time of the revolution, but it becomes most intense in the 1950s and especially in the 1960s and 70s, removal of public, you know, prayer for public schools, Bible reading for public schools, Roe v. Wade, uh, more diverse culture and so forth. In other words, the world is changing, and historically, whenever the world is changing, most white evangelicals at least usually respond with fear and look for a protector uh, to try to protect them, right? I also think there is a, 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 at least a 50-year propensity uh, among white evangelicals to pursue uh, political power, and try to solve the world, change the world, solve the world's problems by gaining control of the levers of power, whether that be the presidency, the Supreme Court, or the, um, or the, uh, the, the Congress, for the purpose of um, executing their moral agenda, which is essentially you know, a political playbook defined by things like abortion and, um, in this case, religious liberty this time around as they define it. And then I think third, um, just a general uh, nostalgia for a a world that either never either is gone forever or never existed in the first place, right? You know, this sort of longing for, you know, when, when you hear the words, I've said this many, many times, when you hear the words make America great again, a lot of people on the street will focus on the word great. I'm a historian and I tend to focus on the word again, right? Show me when America was great, and then we can have a conversation about what life was like for everybody during that period, right? So I think there's a kind of unhealthy nostalgia where where many Christians refuse to look in the face of history in all its complexity, the good and the bad, and and come to grips with some of the problems that not only have plagued America, but that white evangelicals have been uh, um, responsible for in America. That's the 45-minute speech in in two minutes. Yeah, It's in the book, believe me, out there. I unpack all of this stuff.
0: Please join me in thanking Dr. Fia for being with us tonight. I'll
2: see some of you tomorrow, I hope.
0: And please do come back tomorrow. If you didn't sign up through Operu and you want to come back tomorrow, let Sarah know on the way out. I think we have some seats left. Um, Let me also remind you that uh, we have four of his books out there, and uh, we'd be happy to um, see you take some of those away. So thank you so much for being here tonight, and I hope to see you tomorrow.
2: Thanks, everybody.